welcome to the Faith, Health, and Home Digital Podcast. I am your host, Makeba Giles. Here we share information and resources for physical, emotional, and spiritual well-being to help families live an inspired lifestyle and encourage healthy living. Thank you for joining us. Well, I am happy and honored to have Dr. Cheyenne Bryant with me today, who is making LGBTQ mental health a priority during Pride Month. Dr. Bryant is the designated life coach for MTV's newest hit show, Teen Mom Family Reunion, which has also been renewed for season two. And she's using her platform to make a priority to provide tips for June's Pride Month. Again, she's with me now. Thank you for joining me. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Now, um, as we celebrate LGBTQ community this month, your interest is to address the mental health concerns within the community and provide tangible ways to cope with mental struggles. Can you tell us a little bit about um, what you've seen during your time as um, not only a psychology ex expert, but also as a life coach? Yeah, um, you know, some of the issues that I know that I've seen, and you mean in general, or you want me to talk about as far as with the teen mom family reunion? Um, both, actually. Okay, no, awesome. So, I mean, you know, in reference to the teen mom family reunion, the teen moms and dads there, um, what I've seen to be most common with them um, is their loss of sense of self. Okay, they've been on TV for so long since they've been teenagers, and they have developed this TV persona, this uh, TV image, this mask, right? This costume they put on that they want the audience to see um, that they have obviously premeditated and came on with an intent. And what that does and has done to them as teenagers is, is it disabled them from even coming into a sense of self. And so with them, it's not that they've lost sense of self. They've never found what that was, um, you know, Questions like, who am I off of TV, right? Who am I as a wife? Who am I as a mother? Who am I as a young woman? What are the things that I like to do? What tops me off, fills me up? What are the things that um, are important for my self-care, right? What is mental health? What does that look like for me? What is my normal dysfunction, my baseline? And what does it look like when my dysfunctions are choosing for me versus my healthy self choosing and making decisions? And what we found is, um, most of their decisions have been based on their dysfunctions, their toxicity, and their traumas choosing for them. And so, of course, trauma is going to choose trauma, right? And healthy is going to choose healthy. And so when you have a group of, of amazing, you know, uh, moms who are trying to navigate through the dark to find the light of themselves and um, their, their world, it's not an easy it's not an easy journey. And when you don't have the right tools, the fight that you are fighting, or should I say how the, sh the fight shows up on television, it looks uh, bad. It doesn't look like the intentional or the intent you have behind the fight. So people can see this, people can see venom, but what they don't get to see is the root of what they're fighting for. And the root of what they're fighting for, which is peace of mind, which is peace from their broken pieces, which is understanding and healing from their trauma, um, that fight is as ugly as the trauma you go through. And so folks who don't know that look at your fight and go, oh, this 
person, you know, from a judgmental optics and they don't mean to, but they're not experts. They're not aware of this, but this person um, is, is bullying or this person is cruel. Or this person has ill intent. No, this person has trauma that is bleeding out of every fiber and every pore of their body and their experiences and their choices. And so when they show up, you get that trauma. And when they are trying to get that trauma out of them, that fight is as ugly as the experience of the trauma was. And your place is to facilitate like soil does a plant and not dictate how they should show up and how they should grow. Because the point is to externalize what you have internalized so it can get out of you so that you can heal from that experience. And so with them, I've seen a lot of that. And in generally, oh gosh, um, suicide rate is, is at an all-time high. Depression is at an all-time high. Um, suicidal ideations are at an all-time high. Um, just in, in, in general, you know, suicide used to be uh, unclinically called, you know, the white person's thing. It has risen so high in the Black community that it is no longer a white thing. It is now a youth thing. It is now just a thing that people, humans turn to when they cannot cope or they cannot manage or regulate their emotions and their response to circumstance or people. What does that mean? That means that we are uh, lacking information. We're lacking tools. We're lacking coping skills, coping mechanisms. Um, that means that in the home, um, you know, you got two parents working, doing the thing. No one's there. You have kids who are really raising themselves. And I'm not knocking the parents. It's not easy to provide and get your own mental health together and then try to get your kids together and provide, provide a roof and all these things, these moving parts that come with being a human being and being a parent. Um, and so kids are forced to uh, spend a lot of time in the unknown and in the dark. And see, I know like back in my day, um, I, there was more unknown for me than there was dark. So there was dim and there was light, but it wasn't dark. And I just had enough light to be able to figure out how do I navigate through this circumstance, right? And having a problem or an issue was more normalized, at least in my era and in my household, than it is now. There's this need to be perfect. There's this need to um, have this image that you have it all together, all while behind this mask, you are broken and crushed and there's nothing there that's fused or put together. And what happens is when you are spending 80% of your time faking it until you make it, you end up never making it and you end up forever faking it. And so folks are not learning who their authentic self is, uh, the sense of what makes me happy, what brings me joy and what makes me sad and what burdens me so that I manage my choices, my environments and the people I'm around. So I'm not around folks who burden me, but I'm around folks who celebrate me so that I can choose circumstances that empower me and not circumstances that disempower me. So I can choose homes that have a light on and not homes that are pitch dark. And there's a difference in, um, in, 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 in those decisions. And, and, and specifically to the LBGTQ community, LBGTQ plus community, I don't want to leave anybody out. Um, what I found most often being a concern with my clients uh, that I have is, is there a couple of things. One is 
the right per se time to come out. There is no right time to come out. The only right time for you to come out with your preference, your uh, identity, whatever that means for you, or the fact that you don't know either is when you feel comfortable and empowered to do so. Okay, so how do you become empowered to do so? Is what my clients say, Dr. B, how do I do that, right? You get with a therapist or a coach, that keyword's a good fit for you. Not all therapists and coaches are good fits for you. They could be a good fit, but not for you. You have to treat it like an interviewing process. It's almost like a, a job or dating. You have to find out what moves you, who inspires you, who gets you. So you can be empowered by that coach or therapist. The other thing that I find is um, a lot of dogma. Uh, you know, the LBGTQ community, my clients live in this dogma of, Okay, well, um, there's a lot of stigma, right, and stereotypes that come with being gay, right? So do I fit those? And what if I am gay or identify with any of the LGBTQ plus identities? And what if I don't fit what society has made those criterions for being pansexual or being bisexual or transgender? What if I don't fit those, but I feel like the identity I identify with are one of those? Well, guess what? It's up to you to pinpoint, it's up to you to design who you are if you even want to label yourself with one of those titles. You don't have to be any of those if you choose not to. I don't run around as a heterosexual woman and say, hi, I'm Dr. Bryant and I'm heterosexual. Nice to meet you. I don't have to label myself. I don't have to title myself. And so I teach my clients, listen, you don't have to be stuck or get caught up in societal constructs where you have to title yourself. You can just be a person who walks in a room and you meet another person and y'all just click. And if you guys happen to fall in love and it's the same sex, you know what you got going on. You don't have to come in with a title on your back. And I noticed that that has alleviated a lot of their anxiety and has allowed them to be a lot freer in who they are and not freer in the eyes of other people, which is enabling codependency and other folks. Exactly. And so many questions, <laughs> um, so many questions I want to ask you from everything that you just said. Um, first, going back to the teen mom experience and how you talked about that trauma and trying to um, find themselves and trying to discover like who they are, um, you know, their likes, their dislikes, trying to find their identity. Meanwhile, they have a child, you know, so they're, they're trying to be mom. So they're trying to help the, you know, their child um, discover themselves as they get older and they grow, but then they have to discover them, their own selves as well. Um, how do you coach, especially, you know, with you being having this experience on the team mom show, uh, how do you break that down with the clients on, on the show? You know, um, Ashley said something that was really amazing um, in one of our interviews uh, recently that I also teach to my clients and also the team mom. She said that, she said, with all due respect, I take inventory. And these weren't her exact words. I'm probably putting it in a more clinical term. But she said, I take inventory of what um, my parents did and did not do. And I take inventory on the moments that I felt unsupported or supported, um, nurtured, not nurtured. And I make sure that in those moments that I felt unsupported and I find myself doing the same behavior, exhibiting that, that same pattern, I do the opposite. And I show up. 
And I made sure that I say, oh, wait, wait a minute, wait a minute. When I had this going on, I remember when I was a kid, I felt very alone when my parents didn't show up or when my parents didn't acknowledge me. And so I often uh, teach, I say, hey, listen, you know, there is no, uh, there's many books on how to parent, but there's no blueprint that shows the best results. You have parents that have five kids, raise them the same, come from good stock per se, and you got four kids that go excel and do whatever society considers successful. And you got that one black sheep that just happens to fall off and everybody's going, well, what happened? Life. Everyone deals with life differently. Everyone has experiences differently. We can have the same DNA and we can have the same uh, blood, but that doesn't mean that we have the same approach and we are affected the same way by life's experiences. So what does that mean? That means that I always say as a parent, the number one thing that you can do, the most selfless thing that you can do for your child is self-care, is your mental health, is to fill yourself up, top yourself off so that you are recharged, you are tapped in, tuned on, turned on by yourself and by life without the need or codependency of needing someone else to show up and be a certain way for you to be okay. Because one thing about um, life is that words don't teach experience does. And so while we are talking to our kids nonstop, ages one through five, right? When they're, when they're most uh, sponges, but also their kids forever, um, they uh, are not so much observing and learning from what we're saying. They're observing and learning from the optics of the experience that we provide them. And so I know I said to one of the team mom and dads on the show, um, um, uh, Brittany and Devion, I said, listen, there's nothing that Brittany can tell your daughter that can skew her perception of you. Her perception of you will be shaped by the experience that you give her. Her mother can say all the negatives, not that Brittany was, but all the negatives. But if this little girl gets the best experience of you as her father, who's committed, who shows up, who supports her, who has her back, who loves and nurtures her, that's all she will know because experience shapes words do not. And so as parents, the number one question that we should ask ourselves, and interesting enough, I was telling my client this yesterday, she has an autistic son and he's 10 and it's extremely challenging for her because she has another little one that's two and she's pregnant with one now. She's about four months. And she says, if I discipline him, Dr. Bryant, her autistic child, I will be disciplining him every day because of his diagnosis. He has no sense of verbal discipline. And so he constantly would say, am, you know, am I, good, am I a good child? Did I have a good day today? Was I a good boy today? She goes, I don't know how to have the balance of discipline. Right? What do I do? And I explained to her, I said, you create an experience for him because he doesn't have the insight to understand words because of his autism, but also kids who are not autistic or who are not um, you know, special needs. Also, again, words only sit for so long. I always say when the memory goes, there goes the words, there goes the person. But if you can create an experience, which is at the heart space, then you have a friend or you have an understanding for life or at least for long-term. And so as parents, I say, ask yourself, what experience do I want to create right now for myself and my child? Do I want to create, you know, the, the very firm, um, very, very firm uh, disciplinary parent right now, which I believe, my personal belief, not trying to self-project, that there are moments for firm discipline. But I came from a very disciplinary home and I loved it. It worked for me. And I think there are moments where you say, no, at this time, I want to create a very nurturing, a very compassionate experience for my child. So those um, approaches look different. Obviously, firm is, you know, put that down. That's not okay. You know, if you do it again, you're on punishment. If you do it again, then I will take the toy away. 
and the kid understands, hey, I might, I'm, I'm, I may not, I may be in trouble. Maybe something isn't right here. Of course, the compassionate, loving uh, way I call it is a sandwich effect, two breads and the meat. And the sandwich effect looks like the first piece of bread is, baby, you know, mama loves you, right? The meat says, but this right here, we've had this conversation. You cannot do this, right? And the other sandwiches, and I love you to pieces and mama knows you could do better. So let's shape it up. That's the sandwich effect. I think there's a time for both. What I promote more is a sandwich effect because I am a love bug and I believe nurturing and love has a big reward to it. Uh, but I also believe, uh, like the Bible says, an undisciplined child is an unloved child. So I do think that discipline needs to be implemented. Uh, what discipline, the benefits of discipline are, um, I know like for myself, I was very much a disciplined child. I know even 39 years later that I was loved dearly because my parents paid enough attention to me to wear my tear, my tail out when I was doing something bad. They paid enough attention to me to know that when I was, when I was making the wrong decisions versus when I was making the right decisions and my parents took the time out because it's, it's very exhausting for the parent when it comes to discipline more than it is the kid and kids don't get that. And parents without kids don't understand <laughs> that it is exhausting to discipline your child and it's taxing emotionally because a lot of parents go into guilt and say, did I go overboard? Was that too much? Did he get the fact that I loved him and that's why I'm doing this because I protect him? Or did he take it as I emasculated him? Or did she take it as I disempowered her? When the whole point of my discipline is to say, look, I love you enough to observe you and watch you enough to have knowledge of the things that you're doing. And a child who's disciplined is a child who's seen. And that's why in households, you'll see kids who are excelling and they're the quote unquote good kid. And so they don't get all the discipline. But then they have this question that says, well, I understand why I, why I get good, good grades and while I do so well. And this other kid, my sibling who is bad all the time and misbehaving gets all the attention. That shows you right there, right? That everyone needs acknowledgement. And at the hands of discipline is usually the way that it comes. And so, of course, you want to have the healthy discipline, which I described early on. But that's what I tell parents. You know, number one question parents ask yourself is what experience do I want to create for myself and my child? And then after that, did that experience warrant the result that I desired? Now, I want to dig a little deeper into um the psychology of what you just said, creating the experience for your child. When you're a young mother, um, and especially when you said, you know, during that uh, an age range where or you may have had trauma or you're still trying to find yourself, you do have moms who, like you said, you know, what did mom do? What did dad do? You know, what, what takeaways can I take from my upbringing? But you also have young moms who, instead of the focus being on creating, what experience do I want to create for my child? It's more of, well, I was traumatized by said discipline. Or, you know, I feel like even if it wasn't extreme, not, you know, not abuse, but like you said, you know, just saying that, you know, the sandwich effect, it's, you know, I, I just feel that that wasn't good. So uh, I'm going to do the exact opposite. Mm -hmm. And then at the same time, though, I'm going to um, try to discover myself and learn myself and have my child over here, you know, um, 
And then in the midst of that, you have the child, they act out, they do something, you know, and instead of the discipline or even just acknowledging, like you said, you know, being seen or acknowledging it, it's, oh, it's fine. It's fine. So that's a generation that we are in right now that we're seeing happen more and more and more. So that's what we want to dig a little deeper into that with you. What do you, um, you know, uh, professionally, how do you address that with any clients that you may have had, um, whether it was, you know, people from the show who came back or just, you know, outside of the show, how do you address those type of parents? You know, and I love this question because I feel very strong and passionate about the style of parenting. Uh, currently, this new, like you just described, it's okay. My child does no wrong. Uh, you know, this very soft or passive or absolutely no type of discipline in the home. And if we look at the results of that, not opinion, but the stats, the statistics, the scientific results of that. Um, we have an increase of what kids and parents nowadays call bullying. That bullying is resulting in mental health issues. It's resulting in suicide. There was an increase in suicide in the Black community. And the reasoning or the cause behind the suicide increase are because um, these kids are feeling bullied now. Um, they are not being accepted by their peers and because of breakups in relationships. Now, I say all that to say the parenting style shifted. What shifted the definition of bullying? I am nowhere near for bullying, nowhere near condoning bullying. But what I am saying is when you catastrophize a age-appropriate circumstance, dispute, engagement, argument, and even age-appropriate fight. That's what humans do, especially adolescents and kids. They don't have the insight to regulate their emotions. They are very, very reactive. They say things, doesn't make it okay. But what it does do, it makes it a perfect disciplinary learning moment, right? not a moment where we catastrophize that circumstance and we label it as bullying. Bullying is a very traumatic experience. I know that back in my day when discipline was higher, okay, depression was lower, anxiety was lower, suicide rate was much lower, even in the Caucasian community, okay? Bullying was less opt to be called when you had age-appropriate kids who were doing age-appropriate things like maybe hitting each other, but not to the point of cost, of course, where you're causing injury or impairment. Maybe words were exchanged, um, friendships were falling out, breakups were happening, and it was not called bullying, it was called life. And again, I'm not, I'm not demising bullying because I don't condone, but there's, there's a difference between life and trauma. And when you start to make normal life experiences, catastrophe and trauma, you are going to get increase of everything negative. And so what's happening now, and I'll wrap up with this answer, parents are no longer taking accountability for their kids' behaviors and for being parents. 
And so it looks like they're saying the new wave of discipline is no discipline because um, discipline back in the day was abused or it was intensified and it wasn't resultful when it was because I was one of those 80 babies and I was a very much disciplined child, not abused. And it worked well for me. And I'd be mad at my parents if they ever said they'd do it differently. But the parents now, it's more of the energy, like we spoke about a little earlier on, of disciplining a child is also something. And I say this, and if, it's, if it sounds like it's not respectful, then hey, so be it. It's also the parents not wanting to be use that energy. And, and it's lazy parenting to me. It's lazy parenting that says, what you just asked me in your question, I'm working on myself. I'm trying to get myself together. I'm more than likely a single parent. And so I'm trying to navigate through that. I'm trying to navigate through my own childhood traumas because therapy and coaching and all this stuff wasn't as prevalent then as it is now. I'm trying to do this self-help and I'm trying to build this empire and look at here, kid, I love you, but it's easier for me to love you and not be accountable as a parent for your actions and discipline you than it is for me to run this play over here, run the discipline play over here. And guess what? I'm going to be sacrificing myself as a parent when parenting comes at the expense of sacrifice. And if you don't understand that part, then you're doing a disservice to your child and yourself. I'm making these faces because you are saying a whole word. <laughs> you're saying a whole word. Um, I'm a mom of four wow. and they range from 28 to 15. And so you are saying a whole word. You know, I was a 70s baby. So just like you said, you know, growing up in that disciplined home, in that, you know, structured home and knowing that had it not been for that, I wouldn't be who I am today. I wouldn't have been able to take, like you said, you know, the, the adolescent teasing or the even, you know, the, the hills and valleys of life. As you said, you know, everything is not trauma, you know, nothing that my parents did, nothing that my mother, my father, my grandparents, my aunts, my uncles, none of that was trauma. It was all raising me, yeah. conditioning me, disciplining me, letting me know, okay, this is right. This is wrong. So that when I got this age, I could be a model citizen. I could be an upstanding citizen. I won't be in jail or in the grave or, you know, out in the street or doing whatever. I was able to raise four children successfully because of what I, I got. I took everything from my grandparents, my parents, aunts and uncles. It incorporated all of that into raising my children. And because of that, my oldest son has a master's degree. He just graduated with his master's degree. Yeah. You know, my, my daughter, 20 years old, she's in college right now for clinical psychology, you know, and she's a junior. So, and, and my youngest son, he's going into mechanical engineering. He's still in high school, but he's going, but that's, that's the difference. Like you said, you know, and when they, they, of course they were hit, you know, now more than ever in this day and age, of course they were hit with the teasing, the, you know, the bullying, the words, the whatever, but they knew how to handle it because I passed that down from what was passed on to me. And as you said, you know, nowadays it's just not there. It's not there. 
everything now, especially on social media, social media is conditioning um, people, you know, this generation, the younger generation who now have parents to believe that everything was trauma. Yes. Your parents are toxic. You know, all the parents are toxic. They did everything wrong, you know, and, and don't do your children like that. And as you said, now we see the result. Increase in suicide, increase in mass shootings, increase in bullying, you know, all of these things. And no one's taking the, the you're not taking accountability for it. So I'm so glad that you brought that up from your professional perspective it's important to get that information out there so i'm gonna i'm gonna leave that parenting right there <laughs> and we're gonna swing over uh, back to pride congratulations and great job with your with your babies i think that is amazing i oh thank I, you I honor and admire you for that good job uh thank you so much uh we're, we're gonna pivot to um back to pride month and mental health, because we know that Pride Month has become more and more in the forefront in the media, um, especially during these past couple of years. But and that's wonderful. But we also know that there's still so many people who don't fully understand its significance. Um, why is it so important now more than ever to raise more awareness of the LGBT plus community and their journeys, not just during Pride Month, but all year long? You know, what's most important about um, just being informed and about diversity and inclusion in, in any community um, is that when the LBGTQ community, like any other community, the Black community, um, wins a milestone or a stride in equality, in equity, in, in diversion and inclusion, it is a light bulb that comes on for that community. But we're neighbors. And so just like if I turn my porch light on in, uh, for my home, my neighbor at least gets a little bit of light on theirs. And that is how it works because we're all interdependent. Um, and one race of people or one person doesn't get a game without all of us getting some type of game. The other thing is as the LBGTQ community uh, continues to create the blueprint for unity, for equality, that also uh, provides information to other communities and individuals on what that blueprint looks like. It also shows other people how they can personally be involved. I think the best thing that somebody can do is to be informed on whatever community that they're involved with. If you are an LBGTQ advocate and you don't have to be a part of their community or one of them to advocate for them. You can advocate for the your, your compassion and belief for equality. I think the best thing is to be informed. I know I was watching the big WeHo Pride Festival they had uh, over the weekend, and I'm watching it on, on television. And for the first time ever in Pride history, they actually had um, different doctors from Kaiser Permanente, different LBGTQ advocates on there that were educating and informing on their community and on what they have progressed in, what is still left to work on. And as much as I thought I knew from my clients, right, from having that one-on-one -on -one experience with them and also being a part of and working with the LBGTQ community and being an advocate for them, um, I learned so much more. And the information that I learned empowered me. 
And it inspired me and gave me a better understanding of their good fight. And when you get an understanding of what a, a, a community, a person's good fight is, again, not how their fighting looks, but what their fight is, it gives you compassion for them. It empowers you and inspires you, even if you're not going to become a part of the movement, but to now respect the movement of these people as being human beings. Because as I always say, it is a human right to have freedom in who you are and to live a great quality of life. That should not be limited to a group of people or persons or a social economic class or a way of behaving or showing up. Folks deserve to show up as who they are without their mask, authentic, and have a place and group of village of people that they can go sit with and say, this is my tribe, and be able to look across the room at a different tribe and say, hey, how you doing? Do you guys need anything? It's about being of service. And so I just think it's very important that folks um, educate themselves because in this world that we're in now, whether di diversity and inclusion is something that you support or not, it's here, we're here, we're all diversing, we're all including. And for the folks who are, are, don't understand it, they are getting and will be left behind. Absolutely. And that's a perfect segue to um, the one of my last two questions for you. Um, one of the biggest misconceptions that has had a huge impact on the mental health of the LGBTQ plus community is that a person's love, respect, and as you said, acceptance of those in that community is like an automatic rejection of that person's faith. Um, my brother is part of that community. I have other family members in that community. Uh, my brother, my big brother, he's married, you know, his, his husband. And, you know, to see, and he's also a school teacher. So to see, you know, the things that he may go through on a daily basis. Um, we know the phrase, even though they go through that, we know that the phrase love is love directly coincides with the biblical directive of love one another. So it's just like you said, you know, advocating, um, accepting equality, being an advocate for equality. What approach do you take in your life coaching to help both the members of the LGBTQ plus community and non-members to understand that, especially when it comes to counseling family members and loved ones? You know, that's a great question and it gets a little uh, blurry and clear and blurry and clear because it is a gray area as much as I am into like the Bible, be hot or cold, not look warm because I'll spit you out, right? Yeah. There is a bit of a gray area when it comes to um, making sure that I'm not self-projecting my own beliefs onto my clients mm -hmm. and family. And so my approach, uh, which is a hybrid approach, is more about me trying to see and feel and get a knowledge of what what their ideology is of this whole you know lgbtq plus or of their gay family member or transgender family member what is their ideology of that what are some of the stigmas that they have um, taken on so that we can find out what they're projecting onto that person mm -hmm. so we can show them uh, the experience that person is receiving from their love or lack of love or support or lack of support for their choice 
And then from there, um, you know, I usually navigate what love looks like and means for them. Because some people look at love as being something that is free, being something that is um, very liberating and authentic. And in love is something that just happens. It is not so much a choice. Others look at it like love is a choice. And, um, you know, if you're talking about love for a child or family member, it's different than love for a romantic partner and love should be, you know, man and and, and, and woman. And so those are more traditional people. And what I try to do is not break their traditions because that's not my job. It would be unethical and it just wouldn't be my approach. And I believe in respecting, right? Equality means I also respect your freedom of opinion, your freedom of ideology. And so I just say, okay, well, if that is love for you, right? At what point or what can be done, if anything possible for you to be able to accept the ideology or um, the, the, the definition of what love is for your loved one. Because yes. at this point, you guys have a total different definition of what love means, but you both are sitting here uh, completely loving each other enough to work through this. And so that means that although your ideology of love is different, somewhere within you, love has to be in alignment because you're fusing on loving each other enough to work through things. And so when I take that approach, it tends to open people up more and it helps with breaking down um, their ideologies, being stuck and separating, okay, this is what I think love is, but I can be okay with knowing what your idea of love is. And I can just love you by me and your relationship and not having to um, demise our relationship because I can't buy into your idea of love and you won't buy into mine, which again is called codependency. So I do a more, uh, a lot of breaking and demise in the codependency piece so that we can just love each other without the need to buy into each other's idea of what this is because, and I know we got to wrap soon, but anytime someone is trying to sell their idea or opinion of someone, it's ego. And you guys will never reach the peak of peace or understanding. Exactly. And it's loving people for, for like you said, loving people for who they are, um, loving people for how they show up for their own selves. Um, that's, and I'm so glad you brought that out. And that's why I asked you that question, because even today in 2022, a lot of people struggle with that and they don't understand. You know, love is universal. You can, you have to love people you, you love people how they show up, you know, not how you want them to show up, you know, or, or what you feel they should. And there's nothing wrong with that. There's absolutely nothing wrong with that. God put us all here to be ourselves. Everyone is authentic in their own way. And that's the foundation of love, of loving other people. So a I'm glad that you said that because, you know, we see a lot of fights on Twitter and whatnot. <laughs> so um, thank, I, that's why I asked you that question. So hopefully that can change very, very soon. We know that there are lots of LGBTQ plus community members who work in a corporate capacity, um, such as doctors, lawyers, um, like I mentioned, my brother, who's a teacher, that they've encountered experiences where people prejudge them or, you know, may show signs of feeling uncomfortable, which can definitely cause a mental strain for them. Um, what are some things that they can do to help manage the toll that those type of experiences may take on their mental health? 
Yeah, absolutely. Uh, one of the things is I obviously am an advocate for a, you know, therapy and coaching being a lifestyle, not being a intervention or a prevention um, mechanism, but being a lifestyle. I myself have been going to a therapist since I was a freshman in college and I will go forever. <clears throat> it has only made my, my life better um, and increased and expanded me in so many ways that are priceless. The other thing is to make sure that they again, are around people, even if these people are not a part of the LBGTQ um, community, but they are, you know, people who empower them, who support them, who um, can just be like soil again and facilitate them in what they're doing and how they're doing. And, you know, folks who, who get them, it's really important to be around people who just, who naturally get you and you don't have to spend so much time uh, attempting to explain and express and show up in the ways that you are to prove and then, you know, make sure that they are uh, being a voice, a voice for their concerns and the issues that they have. And they're getting uh, involved with organizations and groups that complement um, the voice or the issues or concerns that they have so that they do have, you know, support. They have power in numbers. They have resources and people and resources and funding. If it takes funding to speak on some of the things that they want to speak on. And then um, another one that's right under therapy is relationships. Make sure that they're building relationships with the key people in their corporation, um, in their work environment. And of course, if the key person is the person who is um, projecting or you know providing the negative experience of uh, you know inequality or the one that is not being appropriate then you have to go outside of that and have a voice with your groups. But I always say that it's important to process before you produce, meaning process what you're feeling, what's going on. Um, in, in like the Bible says, it's important to seek wise counsel. Wise counsel isn't always friends and families. They're not experts. Wise counsel is a professional in the mental health field, a coach who has results to show for what they're teaching you and implements their own principles in their life. And seek wise counsel to process what you're feeling before you go on and produce either a lawsuit or an issue or have a voice about something that could be just something that's triggering you because of your past experiences, but wasn't meant to be a big issue. Or like we spoke about earlier, it wasn't meant to be over traumatized. Right. That is so true. And having um, a life coach, and like you said earlier, finding one, taking the time to find one that suits your needs and that gets you and that has an, an understanding of what you're going through and can actually relate to you and feel more like a friend, you know, than just um, a professional, um, you know, appointment perspective is so important. So I'm, I'm glad that you're doing all the work that you're doing. Um, I'm glad that you are advocating for life coaching and counseling and therapy. Um, it's very important for everyone, um, like you said, especially, you know, for the LGBTQ community, not just for them, but their family members and friends as well. So that way um, they can have a try. You know, I'm, I'm so proud of, of and happy to be a part of my brother's tribe. I love him pieces <laughs> as well as my brother-in-law. And I, I can tell that that made all the difference in the world to him. So, um, again, just thank you for everything that you're doing, everything you're doing on the show, outside the show. And um, lastly, tell us 
Any other projects that you may have going on outside of Team Mom Reunion? And where can people keep up with you online? Yeah, absolutely. Um, they can keep up with me at drbryant.co. That's drbryant.co, not .com. Uh, my social media, as far as Instagram, is underscore Dr. Bryant. And I always say with humility, if you just Google me, Dr. Cheyenne Bryant, I am number one on Google. So I'm sure to pop up um, on the top of your page. I have a Mexico a wellness retreat that's coming up. It's called the Dr. B's Mexico retreat. It is September 29th to August, excuse me, September 29th to October 1st of this year, 2022. You can register for that at, on my website or go to my social media I have a workshop that will be um, launching next week, and it is the first week of August, and that's here in Los Angeles. So, so folks, for folks who want to stay local, meaning in the U.S., um, don't need a passport for my workshop. It's a one-day workshop, um, and you can register for that on my website or go to my social media, click the link in my bio. And then I have an audio book to my mental detox book that we uh, should be releasing as soon as we fine tune um, a few of the last audio specs that are needed for us to upload it for everyone. They've been asking for years. So we have an audio book with my voice reading it, um, hopefully coming out uh, next month. And so we have all those good things, um, different products that are in production that we're really excited about that I can't speak on now, but. The Dr. Brian Mexico retreat, September 29th to um, October 1st. We have the workshop the first week of August and the audiobook that's going to be launching um, over the next 30 days. And so we have a lot of good stuff for you guys to keep your mental health good, to keep your self-development going, and to keep yourself, you know, popped off, tapped in, 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 in just, you know, tuned into you so that you can be a better you. And then all your experiences end up matching uh, what you calibrate internally. So... Wonderful, wonderful. And we're going to add all of those links, um, not only on the article, but also in our YouTube description box below for the interview, as well as on our podcast description link. So that way people can go to them, sign up. The, the Mexico retreat sounds phenomenal. Wow. Um, if, I, if I didn't have a son in high school, I would be there. <laughs> <laughs> I will definitely attend that. But yes, yeah, so I'll definitely be on the lookout for those links. We're going to um, publish all of that. And um, also any type of um, promotional um, assets that you have, we will have those out there as well for you. Thank you so much for joining me today. It's been such a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you for sharing with us today. And I know that you've helped a lot of people with this discussion. You've definitely um, inspired me as well during this discussion. So thank you again for all you're doing and just the best of luck in all your future endeavors. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in to the Faith, Health, and Home Digital Podcast. For transcripts of this episode and others, visit our website at faithhealthandhome.com. Also, be sure to subscribe to our podcast and connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, and Twitter. Thank you again for joining us.